And so we quickly uh, went from hiring our first employee saying, once we sell 10 grand a month, we will break even with your salary to, uh, that was January. And by March, we had sold $60,000 of product and we're completely inundated with orders and starting to double shift six days a week in a shared commercial kitchen space. So a very simple business plan, 10K a month, break even, turned into fully off the rails and losing 10K a week. We needed to figure out real quick, how are we gonna stop losing money? It starts with just taking that leap. To work hard, you have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails, you are going to be proud of it. Doesn't matter how badly you got beaten down. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go with your gut. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. You just heard from Jimmy Edgerton about a crucial time in his entrepreneurship career, a moment when it seemed like his new startup was going down in roasted chickpea flames. Luckily, these hard times didn't last forever, since today I'm presenting a special episode of Podcast Swap with seasoned entrepreneurs and business consultants Jimmy Edgerton and Julie Meyer from Augmentors. Before they taught us to navigate the nuances of networking, Jimmy and Julie learned these lessons firsthand through running their own successful businesses. Julie found her start in writing her book, Eat Well, Shanghai, and now works as the co-CEO of a nutrition company, Eat Well Global. Meanwhile, Jimmy worked in real estate until a fateful beer garden meeting launched his business career running What You See Foods. Before we get ahead of ourselves, let's hop in a time machine to the start of Julie's story and see how these lives intersected. To start, Julie, can you tell me how uh, you found a connection to Shanghai? I found a connection when my husband came home and said, we have to move to Shanghai in six weeks. <laughs> and I said, I'm sorry, what? I had three and six-year-old daughters. We were living in Brooklyn. I had just kind of gotten over the mommy, uh, you know, phase. And I was getting into a really nice work groove. And my husband's job it was right before the financial crisis. And they said, we need you in Shanghai. And we had six weeks to pack up and go. It was the middle of school year. Off we went. My little, you know, now I see three-year-olds and I'm like, oh my God, how did I take a three-year-old to China? She was like so tiny and my six-year-old. And honestly, I just was worried about the flight. I mean, if you have three and six-year-old children, you know, the furthest we'd flown was two hours. I was like, oh my God, how are we actually going to physically get there, let alone school? Sedatives? <laughs> actually ipod touches they were they had just come out it was very exciting they were the first kids on the block to have the big headphones <laughs> and the ipod touch so we were already throwing technology at them but at the time i just thought this this is the universe throwing an adventure my way and like my husband's like you were like hell yeah let's go like let's go so we got there yeah i mean it was an absolute adventure it was the hardest worst most wonderful terrible excellent, awful time of my life. How did you create Eat Well Shanghai? China is one of those places that is full of opportunity. You can really make up any business you want. You don't need a permit. You don't need trademarks. You don't need intellectual property. Um, and Shanghai in particular is a very entrepreneurial city. What was odd for me is that I had gone from living in Brooklyn, you know, kind of a very independent woman to living in this 
you know, sort of this compound. It was called the Shanghai Racket Club, which my friends are like, I can't believe you lived in a racket club. I had a minivan and my driver's name was Mr. Jew, which was actually pretty hilarious considering I'm Jewish. And Mr. Jew and I were like, you know, trapped in this compound with these other women who had spent their whole life really following their husbands. And I went to dinner one time and, you know, I thought, okay, well, I'll go hang out with these ladies. And all we did was talk about what our husbands like to eat for lunch. And then we talked about what they like to eat for dinner really was the best opportunity. Cause I was like, okay, either I'm going to become an alcoholic compulsive spending tennis player. I'm going to do something really stupid, or I should just start a business because that's usually what I do when I find my back is up against the wall is I just jump into entrepreneurship. So I sat down, I wrote a book. It was called Eat Well Shanghai. It was a guide for people eating healthy in Shanghai. I'm a dietitian. Um, I just sat down and wrote it. I got somebody to print it. And Mr. Ju became chief head of my sales team. My maid, Xiao Feng, became uh, you know, lead sales. And every day I sent the two of them off in my minivan to go sell my book. And they would drop it off places, pick up cash. And uh, I sold over a thousand copies. A thousand copies? How? Literally door to door. Um, I also sold them in, um, you know, at fairs and different kinds of, uh, you know, I would just kind of like throw up my table um, and sell them there. So I did that for almost two years. I actually sold the business to another dietitian who took the business um, and ran with it. And now actually there's a third dietitian who's running Eat Well Shanghai. So if you're ever going to Shanghai, any listeners, look up Eat Well Shanghai. There's still a guidebook. There's still a blog. But you still like, I guess continued with this eat well idea afterwards right because you would soon create eat well global so what was the idea behind that so actually it's so funny i was just speaking at another uh event the miseducation the entrepreneur talking about my initial business idea for eat well global which was taking these guidebooks and making them into travel apps so like a lonely planet guide i got a chance to meet these dietitians working all over the world so i had 10 travel apps that i had created it was 2011 um, so apps were really new. I had these guys in New Zealand. I like, I don't know, I put this whole thing together. I had 10 apps. I started selling them. And I quickly realized I didn't want to sell apps. I didn't really care about an app company. My background had been in communications and consulting, and I really love working for companies. I like to really know the customers that I'm serving. And I had had a background in comms. I had the nutrition. I had this global piece. Uh, So I ended up pivoting into a global consultancy that was focused on helping use this kind of nutrition knowledge globally uh, to be able to help food companies improve their food. You got to love the casual pivot into a global consultancy, of course, because that's how people (laughs) pivot normally. Well, actually, Jimmy Jimmy brings up a good uh, question is like, how did you even think to pivot to that? Because like that does seem uh, like a massive increase almost in like scale and and also about a, a, a massive pivot in general so how do you like even wrap your head around doing that kind of pivot and then pulling it off successfully so i took a look at like what, what are the biggest food companies that have a global footprint that are trying to either communicate about their nutrition globally or they're trying to think about how they should think about nutrition globally and i kind of forgot this, but I recently ran into a client who was my first client who reminded me, I just, I called the head of global nutrition at PepsiCo in her office and asked if she had anything I could work on. And that's how it started. Just out of the blue. Can you walk me through like how one does that? Like if, if any, if anyone wanted to get in touch with, you know, the head of whatever at PepsiCo, uh, how do how do you, what's the process of actually doing that? 
I don't remember how I got this woman's phone number, uh, but she did say I called her in her office. I just talked to her. Um, I think there's a couple of ways. One, I was part of the international affiliate of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. I'm a dietitian. So there was this group that was interested in global nutrition and there were sponsors. And of course, I became, you know, I got on the board of this group and I became the fundraising chair because I figured there was at least a pipeline of people who were sponsoring things related to global nutrition. So that kind of gave me the list of like, okay, you know, this company's interested, PepsiCo's interested, Unilever's interested. That's actually how I met my business partner. Um, and then, you know, you kind of got the contacts and then you just called and said, hey, you know, what are you working on? Is there anything I can support you on? I have these global, you know, this network of nutritionists that I've met now. Uh, and, you know, what can we do for you? And I know we're, we're going, you know, at light speed through all of this stuff, but how did that company grow and what were some of like maybe the, the hardest moments in, in, in that growth? Yeah, that's such a great question. We're still on the path. This is our 11th year. Um, we're now 22 or 23 FTEs. Um, my co-CEO is based in Amsterdam, so we're about a third of the company. It is still global and two-thirds are in the U.S. And I think initially the hardest part was that I call it like the consulting trifecta because I get a lot of people who want to start consulting businesses who ask me, how should you know, what should I do? And it's like, okay, what do you like to do? What are you good at? And what will somebody actually pay you to do? And my experience was those first couple of years, it was a lot of what are we good at and what are we going to get paid for? But we're, we don't really like it. We did a lot of work we didn't like. There's things I would really like to be doing, but nobody's going to pay us for it. I, I actually want to, to, to lead up to that point. So like, how did you first meet Jimmy? I know that it was January and I know that it was 2020. I was sitting in my uh, office, minding my own business, just sitting there thinking, what's this year going to bring? Um, and I got a LinkedIn note from Jimmy, and he said, hey, I'm Jimmy. I teach entrepreneurship at Tufts. We're both Tufts grads. And he totally flattered me and said, your profile and your business look amazing. And would you be willing to um, come give a case study for the class? And I was like, yes, Jimmy, <laughs> I would love that. So that was how we first met. Jimmy, I kind of want to hear what le led what led you up to creating What You See Foods. What You See Foods came about as the second iteration, branding-wise, of a snack and breadcrumbs consumer packaged goods business uh, that was trying to make it easier to eat healthy all while utilizing the almighty chickpea. So every product we had had chickpeas in it. Why the chickpea though? Just really quick. It was something that at that time, uh, almost 10, yeah, 10 years ago now, hadn't really made it mainstream in the United States, but as an ingredient, as a crop, it was a staple in many different cultures throughout the world. So you can look at Mediterranean, you can look uh, Indian, uh, Ocean, some kind in Asia. Many of those cultures are using roasted beans, but it hadn't really made it into the U.S. for a variety of reasons. And now it's a it's a much larger uh, subcategory within natural snacks. Right, but like you were you were one of the first. So like, how did you, I guess, lean into it and become Jimmy like Jimmy Chickpea? Jimmy Chickpea. Oh, oh Lord, I'm getting uh, flashbacks. And my uh, business partner at the time, best friend from college, Dr. Garbanzo, 
Greg Katz, <laughs> he actually was making roasted chickpea snacks in his home in New York City, his little home apartment. The oven didn't have any knobs on it, so he just made them you know, to what he thought was appropriate. And he would take these baggies of roasted chickpeas into the hospital and eat them as snacks. And I guess he somehow must have been charming because all of the nurses and doctors would ask him for his snacks because for some reason the word got out. And a similar situation occurred with me where I'm sitting in a beer garden in Prague next to Greg and out from his pocket after a transatlantic plane flight, he's like, yo, you want some snacks? And I'm like, well, pretty weird that it's in a baggie in your pocket <laughs> 12 hours later. But yeah, I've had a beer. I'm ready for a snack. So it was honestly just with uh, that kind of moment of why don't we sell them one beer later? Uh, and I said, sure, you know, you know, why not? Uh, I had already gone through running my own general contracting business and then getting into real estate development and selling condos and other buildings that were a combination of historic and sustainable. So I was kind of ready for my next challenge. So going from, uh, you know, the real estate market to the chip chick fee market. Like, did that just feel like a natural progression? Yeah, you got to think about the hierarchy of basic needs. You know, Matt Damon took water, so I didn't need to go for that. So I, I, I went from housing to food, uh, you know, uh, shelter, food. And uh, I, I, I should joke now with Julie that now we're working on air uh, with, with augmenters and podcasting. So uh, it's all got to be around, you know, product staples. All the elements. <laughs> exactly. But, but honestly, it came from an ethos of just trying to find a way to make the world a little bit more sustainable and people a little bit more happy. How did you start like just, you know, selling these things and, and getting the business off the ground and like, I don't know, creating a business model that uh, didn't lose you money? <laughs> well, you first created a business model that lost a lot of money and then you started to create a business model that broke even. And then you got to a business model that made a little bit of money. Uh, but I realized right away that uh, Greg as a doctor uh, resident was not going to be able to create enough snacks in his home kitchen for us to be able to go out and sell. So we signed up at a local community shared commercial kitchen space. And we were very quickly within three months, we had experiences on NBC's Today Show where Marcus Lemonis of The Prophet was the uh, host. And I got to sit at 5.45 a.m. next to Carson Daly who would walk in banged up, looking like all hell, and 10 minutes later would look gorgeous as he'd walk out on the Today Show, and I'd get my makeup done next to him. So we did that three weeks in a row. I saw Carson each morning, and for somebody of my age, uh, Total Request Live and being next to Carson Daly was a big deal. Uh, yeah. And we ended up winning the Startup to Success competition on NBC's Today Show, we part uh, at the same time we had success pitching to Whole Foods Market in our local mid-Atlantic region centered around Washington, D.C. and Baltimore. And so we quickly uh, went from hiring our first employee saying, once we sell 10 grand a month, we will break even with your salary to uh, that was January. And by March, we had sold $60,000 of product and we're completely inundated with orders and starting to double shift six days a week in a shared commercial kitchen space. So a very simple business plan, 10K a month, break even, turned into fully off the rails and losing 10K a week very quickly. How did it creep up on you? Because I imagine, or, or was it something that happened overnight? 
kind of overnight because every day we went on the Today Show was $20,000 in sales. So that was upsetting to a business plan, yet very exciting, and immediately created delusions of competency that I could have upwards of 40 people employed at a business that was barely selling any product 60 days before. So it was having some success at a, at a less complicated scale, but not understanding some of the basics of financials and accounting, like not realizing that, hey, if I, if I buy you know $100,000 worth of raw chickpeas, that's not just out the door. We keep that on our books for a period of time. So it was hard even then to understand what 10 grand a week meant in losses. I just knew the business kept needing more cash and we didn't have it fully under control. And we needed to figure out real quick, how are we going to stop losing money because uh, Greg wasn't a full doctor yet and I didn't have any real estate projects <laughs> coming in. So what are we going to do? Because, you know, the, the, the one thing every executive, and this is something I say in my class now, the one thing every executive or entrepreneur must do, they have to keep cash in the business. As soon as the business doesn't have cash, you don't have a business. It's that simple. So I was basically hustling my tail off, trying to make sure there was always cash in the bank account to make payroll every two weeks and keep the alligator at bay as we tried to bump up sales to a place where we thought we'd be break even. How did you how did you move on or get out of this like pretty precarious situation you found yourself in? Transparency. It was being really open and honest with first my partner, uh, and then two with my staff members. Uh, really all of them, but even more my key staff. Because what was funny or I guess not funny to me at the time, but it was funny to me that staff members that were helping me with the books and doing the sales thought the business was great because sales were increasing every month. And even though they saw 10 grand of losses at the bottom, it didn't realize to them as a bad thing because every day I still try to come in with energy and hope and try to motivate as part of my management plan, but uh, they didn't realize it. So as soon as I told them, no, this isn't going that well, this is a real issue. This this number at the bottom, though it's you know only five figures and not six figures, uh, it's a real problem, and we're going to need to change things up. We could all lose our jobs. We could be out of business, and the folks that stayed were really re ready to kind of you know tangle with the hard issues of struggle with me. And just about half of our staff leaving gave me enough space to make significant business model changes. Where instead of manufacturing in house. We then switched to manufacturing at uh, local facilities that would make it for you. It's called contract manufacturing. And our business model totally switched. So then three years later, by the time we were acquired, instead of having almost 50 full-time equivalents, using Julie's fun consulting term, I didn't know what an FTE was when I was uh, running my business. But when we ended up getting acquired, we were down to two and a half FTEs. And I was one of them and still not getting paid at that time. Wow. What did it feel like to sell at that point? Uh, so the feeling was excitement at being supported and having enough time to spend more than you know 5% of my day each week working on the business instead of in the business to start having more like 20 or 25%. Uh, to work on the business, so to really think about, okay, what are the products we need to bring based upon what customers are asking for in the market? Like, how can we solve some of these market needs 
And uh, that was really exciting uh, uh, to actually see opportunities for product development and start working with so much larger potential brands. Going, I, I guess, like as this was, was developing, how did you get into teaching and mentoring? About six months before I met Julie, uh, Greg and I were at a New York City event uh, headlining uh, as speakers to talk about entrepreneurship and folks coming out of Tufts University. And so I, I gave my little, you know, chickpea song and dance, which I had practiced now quite a bit. And one of the department heads came up to me afterwards and said, hey, would you be interested in uh, coming back to Tufts and helping out some way? I was like, sure. What do you think? And he said, well, you could come do this or that, or you come teach a course. I was like, teach a course? What are you talking about? I've been like 15 years out of school. I'm not teaching anything. I don't know how to do this. These students are all way smarter than me. But I was lucky enough uh, that this individual, Jack Derby, it's now called the Derby Entrepreneurship Center at Tufts University. Uh, Jack uh, was patient, said, I think you should give this a try, and, uh, and said, here's some people to talk to who have taught here. And so he again connected me with others. And that connection to others without payment, without expectation, they just took the phone call and were willing to chat with me was really special and brought me to uh, how Julie and I met, which was, oh, snap, I got uh, 13 weeks of classes and three hours each class. I got to fill some time and give the students real world examples of professionals out there kicking butt in the field of food and nutrition. So, Julie, you get this random LinkedIn message. How do you end up in this classroom? So I get the random LinkedIn message and in January, and we make time to chat on the phone. And I, I am now a reformed phone hater. I used to hate talking on the phone. Hated it, hated it. I was in Chicago, but I was leaving downtown, and I was headed towards O'Hare in the middle of rush hour, and I knew I had like an hour at least to kill so Jimmy and I started chatting on the phone, uh, and I had to get out of the car, and I kept talking. We kept talking. We talked for like an hour and 15 minutes. I think we only had like a half an hour set aside. And I thought, wow, <laughs> all right. Um, and one of my colleagues knew Jimmy. They had known each other uh, when Jimmy was running the chickpea business. So I pinged her, and I said, do you know this guy, Jimmy Edgerton? She's like, oh, yeah, I know Jimmy. He's got a lot of energy. <laughs> energetic guy I was like he's one energetic dude I was like yeah so we made a plan for me to come to speak at the class on March 23rd 2020 and uh that was the date that I was going to come to the class and I put it in my calendar lo and behold the next week a client said hey can you actually come to our board meeting on March 23rd 2020 to speak um so I said Jimmy can I move it to March 11th 2020 of course these are all you know very pivotal pivotal dates uh, in 2020, as we all know, March 23rd was very different than March 11th. Um, and it was in Boston. It was actually my daughter's 15th birthday that day. Was I supposed to come? I have a client there who's about to sign my contract. I said, hey, are you used to, she's, she's uh, outside Boston. I said, are you still going to be there? We're going to meet for lunch on the 12th. She said, you know what? I'm still going to be there and I have your contract on my desk and I'll sign it when you get here. Well, if there's nothing that's going to get me on an airplane, pandemic or not, pandemic is a signed contract. So I was going to cancel coming to the class, but I said, okay, I'll still come to the class. So I came on March 11th, 2020. Uh, I got a chance to speak in the class and I got a chance to meet Jimmy and I got my contract signed and they're still one of our best and favorite clients. So a lot of good things ended up happening on that day. How do you guys keep in touch post the world shutting down or as the world is shutting down? 
again, I'm a cold caller. So I was like, I really like that guy. I was like, I'm just going to text him and see if we can like make more time to talk. Um, because that after class, we went to happy hour and we were sitting next to each other. And I was talking about the struggles I was having in my business. I was talking about sales. I talked about needing to work on my sales strategy. And I saw a light turn on in Jimmy's eyes that very, <laughs> very few people have <laughs> to get that excited. He's like, I'd really like to talk to you about that. I was like, oh, my God. Yes. I just like want to sit and talk about sales strategies. So, um, yeah. So we just started chatting like, again, total pandemic, you know, don't know what to do with ourselves. Very energetic people with lots of ideas. And we just started chatting. Those conversations, I, I think, brought us to a really uh, important point, which was we realized that there were some new problems that we were having, which mentoring could help us. And if we started talking about mentoring in some way, it would also save our time uh, from some repeat issues we were having and we wanted to help others. Uh, so we thought we could reduce some of our time, do it better and help others. And that was the genesis of Augmenters through Julie's skills of public relations and creating a message house. How do you turn that idea into like reality? I would say the key piece was realizing that one, we enjoyed chatting with each other and enjoyed chatting with others. Uh, and then two, I realized very quickly that if I gave Julie a challenge, she would get a little pissed off and think that I thought she couldn't do it. And then she would want to prove me wrong. Uh, being from Chicago, maybe she learned this from Michael Jordan and Michael Jordan's like classic chips on his shoulder. I think it's a Boston thing. I don't know. Uh, we probably both have a little chip on our shoulder, but I think we challenged each other to say, let's do 20 episodes. And we mapped out what those 20 episodes would be. And at the very least, we knew that it would solve those 20 episodes would be something that we could continue to give to others when we had questions come to us, such as, oh, uh, what's an augmenter's principle six of augmentering? Oh, it's consistency in relationships and how important that is. And that's something that I'll send that episode probably a few times a semester to students to say, hey, I think you should listen to this. So instead of me having to go through a 30-minute one-on-one call about consistency in a relationship, a student can go back and listen to this episode that we created. And that was something very valuable to me and has helped others which is scaling my effort and ability to be there and show up for other people I care about. And then how did you eventually uh, uh, connect with HubSpot? Well, like all good things, we were just diving for loose balls on the internet. So it's back to you know the hustle here. Uh, I, I can't even remember where we saw this. I do because I we really love HubSpot. Uh, Eat Well Global is a HubSpot client and Augmenters was a HubSpot client. And we got our little, you know, email saying that they were, I think they said they were looking for people in the cohort and we put it together and applied, sent it back. And we worked really hard on a cool uh, reason for being, which we didn't have. And we showed up on a call with Marie and here we are. So where are you in that journey today? Uh, where is Augmenters? What are you most excited about? Well, I mean, we were excited to come on yeah. this today. Here. <laughs> to <laughs> that, this is where we're at, Sam. We're pumped, man. <laughs> Sam, this is the highlight. <laughs> we were very excited to come on and talk to you. Um, no, I mean, I think honestly, just the opportunity to get to share our story is really fun. So I'm just teasing. Thank you for that. But no, we're growing. I think like a lot of us in this HubSpot Podcast Network, we're learning how to get our podcast in front of the right people. 
we've actually really honed our value proposition. So while we are a rising tide for mentoring, we're really seeing that, you know, again, to Jimmy's point, connecting it back to business, that this really is a leadership podcast and it's really um, helping people connect more authentically with others and grow to their potential. So making sure all of our guests are really bringing that back so people can come to the podcast, they can leave, you know, whether they're, they're what, and we kind of see it as a mid-career, you know, kind of either they are a mentor or they are a mentee or they're both, or they're both of the same people. And how do they um, really get to connect and have really great conversations? So, and especially with the, an ongoing changing economy, and then it was, you know, the, the resignation and now the layoffs. And then, you know, how do people really connect authentically with each other? And I think that's a lot of what we're about uh, at this at this time. So we're just excited to keep growing. Uh, we're, we have a YouTube channel now. It's very exciting. Uh, we're going to do videos on our YouTube channel, I think, Jimmy. What else are we going to do? I got to find a pretty cool light in the background like what Sam has, but then, yes, we should do videos. <laughs> uh, I'd love to like end on what you feel like uh, each of you have learned from from creating this. So I would, and this is actually one of my own uh, habit assertions for this year, uh, Sam, but my takeaway from this experience was if you are not able to convince somebody else to be in your new venture with you, it doesn't have to be 50-50, doesn't have to be a co-founder, but if you can't find a mentor who is willing to support you once a week, even for just 15 minutes, like what you said, Sam, but if you can't find somebody and convince them about how great your idea is and help you shape it, it's probably not something worth your time as much as you might think it is. Julie? Take a risk. Uh, we talk about this all the time with mentors. Like, just reach out to that person. Like, say, hey, can we grab coffee? Can we have a conversation? You know, can we set aside 15 minutes once every two weeks to get to know each other? It feels really, un- I think people are really struggling with doing that right now, but you can't imagine that you could be on Finding Founders with your co-founder that you never would have guessed. And who knows what's ahead of us? We can only imagine five years from now where we're going to be. So I think that's it. Just like leaning into the discomfort and just, you know, just trusting. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our Chief of Staff and Operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Berkel, Matt Fernandez, Renee Buchanan, Sophia Donner, David Saidi, Ashley Jimenez, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong. With support from Sarah Hobson, Cherise Tan, Harushi Kanauchi, Kristen Hagelin, Aya Cortez, and Valencia Lu. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Aiden Ashworth, Nikki McCullough, Sylvie Wong, and Eric Menno. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Tiffany Dang, Yao Liu, and Dina Gabriel. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.